0: Or in church in your church Bibles on page 298. You're going to find 1 Chronicles 2, beginning verse 1. These were the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, and Shelah. These three were born to him by a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, Heir, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sights. The Lord put him to death. Judah's daughter in law, Tamar, bore Perez and Jerah, Azerah, to Judah. He had five sons in all. The sons of Perez, Hezron and Hamal. The sons of Zerah, Zimri, Ethan, Herman, Calcol and Darda, five in all. The son of Carmi, Achar, who brought trouble on Israel by violating the ban on taking devoted things. The son of Ethan, Azariah, the sons born to Hezron, were Jeremiel, Ram, and Caleb. Ram was the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, the leader of the people of Judah. Nashon was the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of Eliab, his firstborn. The second son was Abinadab, the third Shemiah, the fourth Nethanel, the fifth Radai, the sixth Ozem, and the seventh David. Their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail. Zeruiah's three sons were Abishai, Joab, and Asahel. Abigail was the mother of Amasah, whose father was Jether the Ishmaelite. Turning now to page 816 for a slightly easier reading. <laughs> John eighteen thirty three. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born. "'and came into the world is to testify to the truth. "'Everyone on the side of truth listens to me.' "'What is truth?' retorted Pilate. "'With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there "'and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. "'But it is your custom for me to release to you <clears throat> "'one prisoner at the time of Passover. "'Do you want me to release the king of the Jews?' "'They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas.' "'Barabbas had taken part in an uprising.' this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Guy. Thank you, Guy, right. Ooh. It is
1: indeed the word of the Lord. We, we, we include that phrase. It's good to remember, is it? Because there's big parts of the Bible which we never look at, and, and Chronicles is, is probably one of them. This is uh, the word of the Lord, and, and we should be thankful for it. Um. If uh, this is your first time here today, my name's Andy, um, the minister here at CCV, and it's brilliant that you've joined us. Last week we began this new series called Rooted in 1 Chronicles. It's ambitious, okay, so bear with me, and but it is God's word, and it is good for us. And so to that end, let me pray. Father God, we, we began this serving, service by, by singing, Our God reigns, you are seated on the throne. And Lord, I pray that today as we trace the history of that throne, the history of the kingdom, that our hearts would be filled with hope and comfort. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've come across the BBC show, Who Do You Think You Are? Hands up if you've seen this. Too much people watch Time TV. Um, it's good to know. Well, it, it's a firm favourite. Celebrities go on the show and they sort of trace their own family histories, and and everyone goes on the show. It's quite funny. Everyone goes on the show hoping they're, they're going to hit the sort of the genealogical jackpot, and a bit like Danny Dyer from EastEnders, who went on to discover that he's descended from uh, King Edward III. And he's like, yes, yeah. so that's that's what everyone goes onto the show hoping for. But more often than not, people go on the show and, and unveil not glories, but garbage. Like Jeremy Clarkson um, from Top Gear, um, he went on and he, he discovered that all his ancestors are pretty much from one small Yorkshire village. And for century after century after century, they basically intermarried each other. And he said on the show, I'm amazed I don't have only one eye and gills. <laughs> now, we all, have, we all have pasts, don't we? We all have pasts. But I wonder, to what extent do we let our pasts? Define who we are. In the privacy of your own mind, who do you think you are? And some of us we, we kind of latch onto the glorious bits of our paths, don't we? Maybe we are related to some really famous people or something really good. And or, or perhaps um, we, we latch onto the great and glorious things and things which we've done, and, and, and that's where we place our identity or maybe some of us we we really struggle to sort of shake the burden of our pasts we feel unable to let go of that memory of a shameful thing which we did years ago we feel uh, forever under under a shadow of things which people did to us and so when asked who do you think you are well our heart says, well, I'm that person who did that thing, or I'm that person who had that thing happen to me, and we let that identify us. That's the label which we wear throughout life. So maybe you're the glorious person, maybe, maybe you're the person who latched onto the, the difficulties of the past, or maybe maybe you, um, you, you want nothing to do with your past whatsoever. A bit like we heard last week, um, raised on a diet of expressive individualism, we tell ourselves, well, I can write my own story. I can write my own script. But as we set off in life with that philosophy, we suddenly, we're left with a blank page. We feel rootless. We don't really know who we are, or why we are, or where we are. As we heard last week, this book of Chronicles was written for a people who felt rootless and disconnected from their pasts. A generation or so before, God's people had returned from Babylon in exile back to the promised land. But, and they, they arrived with high hopes very quickly. All the difficulties and all the disappointments being back in the land, well, they quickly began losing hope in God's promises. They doubted there'll ever be another king on David's throne. They doubted there'll ever be the restoration of his kingdom. They doubted there'll ever be a blessing to all the nations around them. And it's this lack of faith in God's promises which led to this identity crisis. They no longer, they no longer knew who they were or why they were or even the significance of where they were. So in the midst of this national identity crisis, the chronicler, we don't know his name, but the chronicler decides to retell all of Israel's history because he wants to help his generation. He wants to let them know. He wants them to see just how rooted they really are. They might feel small and fragile like that seedling, but they have deep, deep roots, so if you're here last week, we went from Adam down to Israel. And this week, we're going to trace the, the royal tribe of Judah all the way down to King David, through him, and ultimately to our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And friends, my hope and my prayer is that all of us here today would learn to shift our identities off our own personal glories, off our personal shameful pasts, and instead think our deep roots deep into who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Okay, that's the plan. That's the aim. So you'll notice on your handouts, you might have a little handout, you're sitting on it, you would be given it on the way in. Do flip that over if you want to follow with, if you want to make notes, um, please do that. But let's begin by tracing the prophecy of the king. Now, the really funny thing when you, when you begin tracing Jesus' family tree is that there are moments of glory, but also there is a lot of garbage. So pick it up. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Do open up your Bibles again if you've uh, lost the place. Chronicles 2, 1. It says this. These were the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Now the first question we should be asking when faced with these 12 boys of Israel is, is how is it that Judah becomes the special promised royal tribe? I mean, look look at this family tree, which is here behind me. You see the, the bits I've circled. There's Jacob, and we see Judah is, is only the fourth born in the line. And he's, his mum is unlovely, cross-eyed Leah, and not beautiful, lovely Rachel, with you know whose son was the desired Joseph. No, no, Judah's the fourth born. How did he become the special guy? How did his line become the royal line? Well, at the very end of Genesis, and Jacob's dying, he sits down each of his sons and he, he prophesies about them. He tells them what the, the future of their people will be. And he says that Judah would be the royal tribe, because from him would come a king. Who would unite all of the squabbling brothers, all the squabbling fra- uh, fractious fra- fraction, factions, fractious factions of uh, the people? Like, That's a so stupid. I shouldn't have put that in. Um, <laughs> never put tongue twisters in your own script. Fractious factions of his own people from Judah will come a king. So at this point we're thinking, ah, okay, cool. So Judah, he must be a little bit better than the rest of the brothers. You know, he, he must have um, some sort of leadership qualities about him. He, he must be a cut above the rest. No. Uh, look at verse 3. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. It's unfortunate, isn't it? Uh, these three were born to him by a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua. Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, bore Perez and Zerah to Judah. He had five sons in all. So as you can see from uh, this family tree behind me, uh, Judah initially married a Canaanite woman called beth Shua. Marrying a Canaanite is nearly always a disastrous idea in the Old Testament. Um, and it seems that neither he or his mother could come up with a decent name for their son. Uh, and Ur um, uh, grew up so wicked that the Lord had to end his line. He had to put him to death. and Not only him, but also his other two brothers were wicked as well. They, 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 their lines were ended too. And so here is the chronicle. He's giving us a little first indication that you might be from the royal tribe. You might even be a king. But that doesn't mean you get special favors. Judgment falls on those who are disobedient to him. And then later in the series, we're going to meet King Saul, whom the Lord also put to death because he was evil in the Lord's sight. And in verse 4, you may have noticed, we're reminded of the tragic story of Tamar. Tamar was Judah's Gentile daughter-in-law. See, when all three of her husbands, one by one, were struck down because they were evil, well, Judah should have stepped in and provided for her, looked after her, but instead he neglected her. And so what women in those days did when they had no means to provide for themselves is that they fell into prostitution. And that's what was forced upon Tamar. So there she is beside the road one day, a veil across her face, when along comes Judah. Judah doesn't recognize her. He solicits her services for the night. Embarrassingly, he forgot his wallet. So he says, oh, I'll have to pay using my ring. Here's a ring and here's some other personal effects which she receives. And as a result of that roadside union, Tamar falls pregnant with Perez, now, later on, Judah discovers that his own daughter-in-law is a prostitute and that his own daughter-in-law has fallen pregnant as a result. And understandably, this important, proud man is furious. How dare you? And so he, he wants her burned alive, as to say, you know, to, to, to send a lesson. At which point she then produces his ring and his personal effects. And to his shame, Judah realizes He's a complete hypocrite. He is the father. It's a really messed up story. It's a really messed up story. And we're supposed to see that God is using the garbage of human evil to bring about his own good and glorious purposes. So the a result of that roadside union came Perez, verse 5, who would continue the promised kingly line. And in verse 6, the chronicler then highlights what happens to the line of Zerah, who is Tamar's other son. So look at verse 6. The sons of Zera, Zimri, Ethan, man That's a great name too, isn't it? Uh, where am I? Calcol and Dada, five and all. The sons of Carmi, Achar, who brought trouble. On Israel by violating the ban on taking devoted things. Now you might remember the story of Achar or Achan, as is also known, um, from the book of Joshua. So you might remember God promises there's the there's the, the big city of Jericho, which is blocking their way into the promised land. And God promises He's gonna bring down the walls of Jericho. God's people Israel are gonna do absolutely nothing. God's gonna do everything. And the only condition is God says, I want all the spoils of the victory for myself because I, I want you to trust me that as we enter into the promised land, I'm the one who's going to protect you. I'm the one who's going to provide for you. But don't take the spoils for yourself. I want them, says the Lord. He wants them to trust him. But Achar violates the ban. Literally in the Hebrew, Achar was unfaithful. And so in this battle, he notices some pretty things and he, uh, he steals God's holy plunder for himself. And he, he hides them in his own family tent. Now, inevitably, this faithlessness of, uh, of Achar and his family is uncovered. And as a result, he and his family, again, are all put to death. Now, I think we're told about this because it's not actually the main plot. It's not the main line. I think we're told about this side plot because um, this word faithless comes up. It's, it's the, the, this phrase violates the band. Achan was it, unfaithful. And this is the chronicle's favorite way of talking about sin. It comes up uh, again and again and again. And this is the first time fa- he's faithless. I think because the chronicle wants to impress upon his rootless people how heinous it is. To respond to God's great faithfulness with faithlessness. It results in death. So let's go back to the main plot. We're back to the, the promised kingly line. And in verses 9 to 13, we're, we're, we're taken from Perez's son, Hezron, all the way down via Boaz. Do you remember Boaz from the book of Ruth? Do you remember her? And eventually to Jesse and his seven sons. So verse 13 says, Jesse was the father of Eliab, his firstborn. The second son was Abinadab. The third, Shimeir. The fourth, Nethanel. The fifth, Radai. The sixth, Ozem. The seventh. The seventh, David. You might remember the story from um, from Sunday school when uh, the prophet Samuel is sent to the little town of Bethlehem, because God says, "Out of this little town is going to be a king." So he goes to the house of Jesse, and um, and Samuel, the prophet, one by one, you know, meets the sons of Jesse, and each of them are just the enormous beefcakes of men, like Ransford here, you know. Each of them are, I'm sorry, I picked on you, you know, enormous, impressive, strong, tall men. And one by one, as Samuel goes down the line of his sons, he's like, nope, 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 nope. And he said, Samuel says, have you got any others? And Jesse goes, well, <laughs> I've got David. He's, a, he's just a boy, he's a little boy. He's, he's, out, he's out in the fields uh, look, looking after the sheep. Well, bring him to me. And lo and behold, of course, David is the one. Samuel says he's a, he's a, he's a king after God's own heart. Unimpressive, weak, but that's God's man. So the chronicle here, he carefully places David 10 generations down from Judah. In the same way, last week, we saw how Noah was 10 generations down from Adam. Just as Noah was the founder of a new humanity, so David is the founder of a new world order, a new kingdom. He's an important guy. Let's pause there for a minute. Now, and I hope you see as we've... Um, Begun tracing the prophecy of the king. I hope you see that the chronicler isn't writing a fluff piece. You know, he's not um, trying to cover up all the skeletons in Judah's closet. In fact, he's doing the opposite, isn't he? He's going out of his way to expose all the embarrassing stories. That he highlights the sinners, the weak people, the unexpected people, the ju- people with dubious mixed origins. He highlights them. Why? Well, a few years ago, I came across a couple of artists called um, Tim Noble and Sue Webster. They're sculptors, but instead of working with stone or clay, they work with household rubbish. And uh, one of their pieces, got it here, is a bunch of beer cans stacked up on a table. They're, they're riddled with bullet holes. It's It's garbage. It's unimpressive. And yet, they then shine a light at a very low angle. And out of the garbage comes a glorious New York skyline. And there's a, another similar piece about a, a pile of refuse sacks with fast food and then, again, foreshadowing, they're transformed into two sky-gazing lovers. Do you see that? I think that's what the chronicler is doing here. He wants us to see that God's glorious kingdom purposes... Are being worked out in the garbage of human evil. Now, this might come as a surprise to us, particularly if we're newer to Christian things, but the Old Testament is not primarily a morality tale telling us to go and be like these people or don't, be, don't, don't do what those people did. It's not primarily about that, and that probably might reassure us, given some of the horrific stories we've heard already this morning. But the purpose of the Old Testament is ultimately... To foreshadow Jesus Christ. And that's why as you turn the page from Chronicles, the last book of the Old Testament in the original order, into the New Testament, we meet Matthew. Matthew's gospel, how does it begin? Well, Matthew basically steals the chronicle's homework. He, he copy and pastes this entire section and plops it straight on page one of Matthew's gospel. Why? Because as he traces the ancestry of Jesus Christ, he wants us to see that the garbage of human evil is being used to bring about God's good and glorious kingdom purposes. So in other words, we might put it this way. The family Jesus comes from shows us the family that he came for. The family Jesus came from shows us the family he came for. The good news, as we've heard already this morning, is that Jesus Christ came to call sinners. Weak people. Unexpected people. People with messy and mixed up backgrounds. Jesus says, come. I've come for you. I've come to invite you into my family and into my kingdom. We'll come back to that, circle back round to that thought later on. But let, let's keep moving because now the, the chronicler shows us the place of the king. Now this has been a bit of a puzzle for me in, in my prep uh, this week because the, the main story of, of David's family, family tree, it kind of gets postponed till chapter 3. But before then, we're made to follow a seemingly random subplot, namely the exploits of Hezron's two other sons, Jeremiah and Caleb, as you can see them on the, on the family tree behind me. Just two random family lines. Now, the puzzle is, why does the chronicler bother including these guys? This isn't the famous Caleb, after whom I named my son, you know, the spy and the giant slayer. Nope, this is another completely random Caleb who we know next to nothing about. I wonder, why is this here? Nearly the most of chapter two. Well, I think the answer is the Chronicle is telling us the origin stories of all the important places in Judah to where the exiles eventually returned. So here's a map of the province of Judah behind me. I've highlighted Jerusalem there and I've got a game for you. You up for a game? I'm going to read a little bit of scripture and you've got to try and spot the places on the map. This is, this is called interactivity. We're trying it. Okay, let me pick up verse 50, halfway through verse 50. Uh, you look at the map there and I'll read. The sons of Hur, the firstborn of Ephrathah, Shobal, the father of Kiriath-Jerim, Salma, the father of Bethlehem, and Hareth, the father of Beth-Gader or Gedor. The descendants of Shobal, the father of kiriath Jirim, were Haroah, half of the Manahathites, and the clans of Kirith-Jerim, the Ithrites, Puthrites, Shemites, and Mishraites, and from them descended the Zorothites and the the descendants of Salma, Bethlehem, the Netophathites, Alshoth, Beth, Joab, half the Manahathites, the Zorats, and the, Clibes, the clans of the scribes who lived near Jabez, the Tiriathites, the Shimeothites, the Succothites, and so on and so forth. How many of those names did you spot? Do you get any of them? Okay, one or two. Well, here's the map. There's the answers. Do, do you see what the chronicler's trying to do? I, thought, I couldn't find a map detailed enough to have every single place name on there. But we could have found that if I had enough time and inclination. See, I, I think, um, just imagine that the chronicler's readers delight as their hometown is read out. Verse 24, Tekoa. And all the Tekeloites go, yes, that's where I'm from. That's my hometown and here's my story. I knew, uh, brilliant. Do you see the delight they would have had if each of their hometowns had read out? Well, I think, I think the chronicler wants his rootless generation to know the history of the places they are in. He wants them to see that, that the place where they're at isn't this incidental quirk of history, just happens to be where the Persians sent them after the exile. No with David's genealogy sandwiching them at the beginning of chapter 2 and in chapter 3, but David's genealogy carefully bracketing this section, their place is literally wrapped up in the promise of a king. So what this means for this rootless generation is he wants them to invest in the place where they are in. Your place... Tekoa might look weak and fragile, post-exile, but invest in it because this is the kingdom of God. Now, I think we need to be pretty careful here about how we apply this because <laughs> it could be a bit dangerous, couldn't it? You might have noticed earlier in our reading from John chapter 18, Jesus is exceptionally clear when he said, My kingdom is not, not of this world. <laughs> It's not a literal geographical area which can be taken by force or with violence, if, you, if we so desired. And I think the biggest single error throughout the entirety of church history is when Christians have disobeyed what Jesus said here. And when they thought that the kingdom of God is a literal geographical place and tried to take it by force. Think of the horror of the, the Holy Roman Empire and the Crusades and, and today with modern political Zionism, which Christians all get caught up in. They're just not listening to Jesus. My kingdom is not of this world, he said. Jesus' kingdom is wherever there are people who name Jesus as their king. They might already belong to a literal geographical country like Britain or France. They might be under the being ruled by um, literal ge- political figures like Boris Johnson or Emmanuel Macron. But they also belong to a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual nation, and and we submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord. A few years ago, there was a book which was going all around the place, and everyone was talking about it. It was called um, The Road to Somewhere, written by a political commentator called David Goodhart. And... Um, the reason it's popular is because he's trying to explain why and how Brexit happened. And, and this is his theory. He argues that basically our country is divided between what he calls people who are somewheres and people who are anywheres. So he argues that anywheres have a portable, achieved identity based on educational and career success. They're generally comfortable with new places and new people. They place a high value on autonomy, mobility, and novelty. They see the world, he argues, from anywhere. But then he goes on to talk about the somewhere. Somewheres tend to be more rooted and usually have more ascribed identities based on group belonging and social contracts such as faith, flag, or family. And these people see the world from a particular place. They are somewheres. I found that really interesting because it got me thinking, well, Christians, what are we? Are we anywheres or are we somewheres? Well, you could argue that we're anywheres because, as we've heard, our home ultimately is in heaven. And so, yes, we should beware following all the middle class idols which we might be tempted to follow, you know, home ownership and things like that. You know, we must be generous with our belongings we must be uh, sit loose to our ties. And I hope that a number of us would be willing to, to go anywhere for the sake of the kingdom. So in a sense, we, you could say, well, we're, we're anywheres, but that's true. But, but I think also we're also to be somewheres. Just like these returning exiles were called to invest in individual towns within God's kingdom, Toccoa. Also, we are called to invest in a local church which, if you like, is an outpost of heaven. We are to invest in our church here because this is the family into which we've been adopted. We are to invest in our community here because we all, if we all end up continuously moving, we'll never reach and serve Balaam, will we? I think in our, in our rootless and endlessly fluctuating culture, we have been given a place, and I think we've been called to invest in it. We're going to develop these thoughts in, in coming weeks as this uh, idea keeps on coming back to the chronicler. But let's move on to our, our last section, where in chapter 3, the chronicler returns to the promise of the king. So would you turn to uh, chapter 3 and verse 4, let me read from there. These six children were born to David in Hebron, where he reigned seven years and six months. David reigned in Jerusalem 33 years. And these were the children born to him there, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan and Solomon. These four were by Bathsheba, or literally in the Hebrew, Bathsheba, daughter of Amiel. So it's springtime and David's uh, army are away uh, in battle, doing war, securing the kingdom. But, but strangely, in this occasion, King David isn't on the battlefield. Instead, he's just lounging around at home in Jerusalem. And, and one evening, he's taking a, a walk along the rooftops when he spies a beautiful woman bathing. David sends for a servant. Who, who is that? Who is that woman? Bathsheba comes the answer. Wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now that doesn't deter David. He sends for her. He sleeps with her. Whether she's willing to this or not, I imagine it's quite hard to say no to the king. But just like Tamar before her, Bathsheba or Bathsheba falls pregnant. And just like Judah before him, what does David do? He tries to cover it up. He uh, gets Uriah to return to the battlefront to try and sleep, uh, return from the battlefront to try and sleep with his wife so he can pass off the child at Bathsheba's. That doesn't work. Then he puts uh, Uriah right on the front lines of the battlefield so that he would die so that he could then claim Bathsheba uh, for himself. And it's because of this act of faithlessness that David's once great kingdom starts to crack. And fall apart. And sure enough, um, as you can see from the family tree here, uh, Bathsheba's son Solomon uh, becomes king. And like his father, he does some really glorious things. He builds a temple, being the highlight of his rule. But like his father, there's a lot of garbage. In his pride, Solomon amasses great wealth and weapons for himself. He even marries a vast array of foreign women who, who lure his heart away to their foreign gods. And because of his faithlessness, God tells Solomon that his kingdom would indeed fall. And sure enough, his son Rehoboam, verse 10, he does exactly that. He, a civil war erupts in Israel and, and the kingdom is broken into Israel in the north and Judah in the south, a split from which they never really ever recovered. So the rest of this list, as you look on, uh, on the, uh, the sheet uh, on the, the family tree there, the rest of this list is just one long spiral of disappointment. And whilst the, the, some of the kings were good guys and, and some of them were okay, none of them ma- measured up to, to David in his prime. A succession of prophets were sent by God to the kings of, Israel, kings of Judah, calling them back to the Lord, warning them that, that exile would come if they remained faithless, but they didn't listen. And so verse 17, if you look down, begins ominously. The descendants of Jehoiachin, the captive. For as during Jehoiachin's reign, that king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon invades Judah, Jerusalem's besieged, the temple Solomon built is torn down and all the nobility are carried off into exile and many of them got the pair of scissors to their testicles. They were made eunuchs and so it looks like the line of David is done and dusted. Jehoiachin the captive. It looks like that's the end of the line. Interestingly archaeologists have actually um, managed to uh, dig up um, the rations uh, given um, to King Jehoiachin. They found this somewhere in modern day Iraq. It shows that Jehoiachin um, was king and, and they had five sons and he got a measly amount of oil uh, to provide for his annual needs. So it looks like it's game over. It looks like it's game over. But as the chronicler's readers will know, it's not. 70 years later, now under Persian rule, the exiles are allowed to return back home from Babylon. And all the hopes are placed on a chap called Zerubbabel. If we go back to the family tree, uh, a few slides before, you may see uh, Zerubbabel there, uh, two generations down from Jehoiachin. And everyone's hopes are hanging on this guy because they they, they think like this is the man who's going to rebuild the temple, and from him would come. Um, another Davidic line and restore the once great kingdom of God. And even the prophet Zechariah, a book about about this period, goes to Zerubbabel and says, look, I know this, this situation is really weak. I know the kingdom is small. I know that the temple we've rebuilt is pretty crummy and pathetic, but from you will come a king and from you will come international blessing. See, Zerubbabel believed that promise. And he didn't give up kingdom hope. And we know this because of what he called his children. Look down at verse 19. Let's see, So named his kids in light of these promises given to him by the prophet Zechariah. Verse 19, we're, we're told his firstborn is Meshulam, which means restored. Hananiah means Yahweh is merciful. Shalomith, his the sister, means peace. Hashuba means Yahweh has considered. Ohel means tent of God. Berakiah means Yahweh has blessed. Hasadiah means Yahweh is love. And Yushub Hesed means covenant love returns. See, Zerubbabel hasn't given up hope. Even though their time and their place was pathetic, Zerubbabel says, no, I believe the promise. And do you know what? The chronicle believed the promise too. And that's why from verses 21 to 24, the chronicler chases the family tree of, of Zerubbabel's children and grandchildren up to the very day when the chronicler puts quill to paper. It's clear that the chronicler himself is longing and waiting for the fulfillment of these promises, for the coming of God's kingdom. 400 years pass. And then. On walks the scene. A man who claims descent from the long promised line of David. And he's called Jesus Christ. And finally. As we meet this man in the Gospels. Finally we meet a king who unlike the rest. Who is faithful. Faithful. A king who doesn't just talk the talk, but but walks the walk. A king who is faithful where you and I are often faithless. A king who is held in honour, even though you and I are often embarrassed and shamed by our pasts. Here is a king you want to give your life to and want to follow. And here is a king who came to save all those who aren't impressive. And all those who are weak and are sinful. See, the family Jesus came from shows the family he came for. I don't know if you saw the movie Lion, which um, was released a few years ago. Um, it's based on the true story of a small boy in India. I think he's about six or seven years old. He, he falls asleep on a train and gets taken far, far, far away from his family he's hopelessly lost he's too little to even know where he's from and it's a tragedy because the film follows him as a small boy as he's abused on the streets of Delhi he's even abused in the orphanage where he ends up um, being taken but eventually he's adopted by a loving Australian couple the mother being played by uh, um, Nicole Kidman there and um they adopted uh, this boy um, called uh, Saru, but they also adopted another troubled young man. And uh, the film traces these boys now in adulthood. And unsurprisingly, given their messed up backgrounds, they're really quite difficult. They're not easy sons. They're often faithless. They hurt their parents again and again and again. Um, his adopted brother is ruined by alcohol and drugs. And Saru is obsessed, obsessed to the point of distraction, trying to chase down his own birth family, disappointed with his adopted family. And it all comes to a head in this really heated exchange between um, his, his adopted mother and Saru. Saru says in this argument, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that you couldn't have your own kids. What are you saying? Says Sue, his mother. We, we, we weren't blank pages, were we? Like your own would have been. You weren't just adopting us, but you're adopting our pasts as well. I feel like we're killing you. To which the mother responds. Actually, I could have kids. What? I could have kids. But we chose not to have kids. We chose to have you. That's what we wanted. We wanted the two of you. We chose you. It's a most remarkable true story. And I, I encourage you to go see the film. But I think it beautifully illustrates what the Chronicle is trying to say here. None of us are blank pages, are we? All of us are pasts. I want to ask that question. Who do you think you are? Well, be honest. On our own, we're not much. We are messed up. We are sinners. And you or not, Jesus chooses us and he welcomes you and he wants you in his family. He wants you in his kingdom and he's given you this place to love you and care for you and nurture you. The family Jesus came from shows us the family he came for. Let's praise God for that. Father God, thank you so much for your love, for your mercy. And in including me, a sinner, in your kingdom, for adopting me with my past into your great and good family. I don't deserve this. but Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy and your adoption. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.